Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. This is 1 John 4, 7 to 22. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who, ha- who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our f- sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thank you so much for uh, leading us in that reading. And thanks for having us here on a wonderful uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we, we thank the world of pastors Chris and Malin. Uh, we've had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with them over the past year. For Chris and I, over the past few years, part of uh, the incubator with uh, CCLN, and it's been a joy to, to know that there is great people. Uh, they're great leaders, but they're better people. And, and Langley needs them. Uh, and we, we hold uh, our friendship really, really uh, joyfully. This, this summer at City Collective, we're, we're going through a series looking at the letters of John. And, and Pastor Chris was generous enough to allow us to continue to do that and, and have you uh, join in with us. Uh, And if you were listening to the text even a little bit, um, maybe you drifted for a moment, but if you came in at any section of the text, you're going to hear one word stated over and over and over again, and that is the word love. It's said at length, in detail, comprehensively, and almost a little bit annoyingly. It's it's mentioned over and over and over again. And here's the thing uh, with love. I feel for myself, and maybe, maybe you're better off than I am, I feel that love can be a little bit overplayed. 
gets overstated. Our culture talks about it in songs and movies and TV shows. It's everywhere, but nowhere simultaneously. It's fantasized and stigmatized. It's commodified and commercialized. It's everywhere. And that's just culture. Then we look at the Bible and Christianity, and love comes up often. Love your neighbor. Okay, got it. Uh, love God. Sure, I can do that. And then it, it just feels as if this idea of love, which is talked about at length in our text, has us a little bit numb to it. We hear the word and it doesn't carry any gravity to the way that we think or the way that we live. And we think to ourselves, perhaps, ah, it's just, just part of life. And then we read the words from John here in the fourth chapter of his first letter. And I would say that he's put it right in our face. This morning, as we were, as we were worshiping, I was thinking to myself, uh, Paul makes this prompt to us in his, his epistles. He, he talks about a variety of different things, but an underlying element of it all is the idea that revelation precedes understanding. That we are in a culture and a time and a place that desires to know all things first and foremost. And we believe that is the guiding force of our life. And if I know everything, then maybe my heart catches up, but the biblical narrative flips the script. God wants you to know the truth. God wants you to know that which is good and that which is true. But first and foremost, he wants to capture your heart. It's a submission of our hearts before there's a conviction of our minds. And this morning, my hope for you is that you might even release a little bit of that hold. That we might submit our hearts as a whole congregation, all those watching online in this time and place. That you might do just a little bit of that because when we do so, the barriers of our hearts come down ever so slightly and that's all the spirit needs. A little entry point that it might speak to the mind that we have, convict it, and then, and only then, do we really start to follow the way of Jesus and become more like him in the way that the scripture is inviting us into. In the spring of 2015, Harvard Medical School released an article around the study of love and the evolution and the collapse of love within people's lives. Primarily what they were looking at was brain scans of 2,500 college students who viewed someone special to them. Researchers found this, that as many of us have experienced and had the privilege of experiencing, there's this flood of dopamine that comes into our brain, the, the so-called feel-good neurotransmitter. Uh, this is that first kiss euphoria. This is seeing your, your bride-to-be walk down the aisle that brings the most staunchest of non-criers to tears. This is seeing someone that you haven't seen for a long time that you desperately love for the first time and everything seems to come to life. That's that flood of dopamine, this feel-good neurotransmitter. But they found a second place in the brain. They identified a neural region centered around our love and motivation. And this region was of particular interest to them because they were considering it to be a primitive neural network. That is to say, it's been there for a long, long time. And in their language, it was uh, evolutionarily old. 
Biological anthropologist Helen Fisher, she studied 166 societies, and she stated that there is a good reason to suspect that romantic love is kept alive by something basic to our biological nature. So I find it fascinating that in our experience of love, we are dismissive of it. But in our wiring of love, it actually sits in our very nature. In our very being, love is present. It is undeniable. And if that's the case, then being numb or unaware of it is a problem. It's not a good thing. If the 1967 Beatles song, Love is All You Need, holds some weight to it, uh, why, do we, why do we go grow numb to love? Where does love get lost? And maybe if that's a societal idea that feels more of a paradigm than something practical, perhaps the more poignant relationship that we need to be looking at through the lens of John is why have we stopped showing love or being selective in our love or thinking about love at all? Where has the love gone? Within this this text that was read this morning between verses 7 and 21 in chapter 4, John uses the word love 27 times in 15 verses. And in the whole book of John, which is only five chapters long, he uses it 45 times. That's a lot of love per square inch in a pretty small book. He's really focused on this word love. And every time the word love is used, he's using it through the Greek word agape, which is the most supreme, the highest degree of love. I'm, I'm really trying to emphasize this because even as I read the text, I found myself glazing over. As if, okay, I've heard this before. This is the classic church sermon. Go love your neighbor. Do that. That's a great thing to do. But I think that John has something more for us here because the gravity of John's words are best understood in the context around it. In his old age, this is John as an old man. He is overseeing a house network of churches, all centered around Ephesus at the time. And this community is made up of mostly Jewish followers. And what's taken place is they've experienced a crisis in the moment within this network of churches. There has been a group that have made the decision that Jesus is not the Messiah. That he is not the Son of God. And in doing so, he has stirred things up within these churches. He's caused unrest. And in many ways, these letters, John 1, 2, and 3, are damage control. So think about this with me. This is a moment within the life of these churches where they seem on the brink of collapse. People are falling away from their faith. They're losing it. And the response of John that he gives to them to deal with it is not a comprehensive, dense theological argument of why they should follow Jesus. It's not a, a call of signs and wonders so that they might believe. It, it, it's not a rallying cry to take down the religious authority and rise up with something new. The call is love. That means something. Their world is falling apart. The churches are falling apart. There is unrest, and yet John wants to talk about 
love. Part of love is, is being known. And for some of you this morning, you, again, you're still hearing this idea of love, and you might be like, this is an oversimplification. It's lacking weight. It's really denying God's full width of his character. But part of being known is love, and part of love is being known. They work hand in hand. Tim Keller, he, he says this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. This is true for us, and this is true for our relationship with God. And by seeing that God is love, he is not stating that love is a characteristic of God. What he is saying is that love flows from God, and all things that he does is a product of love. It's an absolute claim that he's making. And this goes well beyond treating love as simply one of God's apt attributes, like say, mercy or grace. The Bible says God is mercy or God is grace. No, God says, the Bible says that God is love. And what's the difference between saying God loves versus God is love? Well, the first statement, it goes with phrases like God rules or God creates or God judges God heals. Characteristics of God. But the statement, God is love, implies this. It implies that all activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates out of love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is an expression of his character flowing from that place of love. God's creating, ruling, judging, revealing, instructing, blessing, disciplining, giving, rebuking, sustaining, and renewing. All are done in love. There's nothing God does that does not emanate from his loving nature. And any view of God that does not acknowledge love as his central being is deficient. This is what John is adamant about. This idea of love. But you'll notice that the approach that he took is through the lens of who God is. He presents the incarnation and who Christ is. What's been, what's been done through the sacrifice of Jesus. He wants us not to simply know that God is love, but to know God. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at four ideas that John wants us to know about God. And the first one is this. Is the number one is God takes the initiative. In 2019, Iliad Kipchonge a marathon runner, and if you don't know the name, you should know. He's an incredible athlete. He did the impossible. He ran a marathon in less than two hours. He averaged a pace of 34 kilometers per hour for 42.195 kilometers. Most treadmills don't reach that pace. If you've ever ran a 5K race, the average 5K time is about 34 minutes, and those are often trained athletes. To complete a marathon in less than two hours, he was running five kilometers in just over 14 minutes, eight times in a row. 
this, this is mind-boggling. This is crazy. He's an incredible athlete. There's like lots of great content out there on him uh, to check out. But here's the thing. How did he do it? How did he pull off this mind-boggling achievement? He had a group of pace setters that were with him, 35 individuals, through his training and on the race day. This, these 35 individuals were cycling through the process for him throughout the race. They weren't running the full race with him, I'll tell you that much. But they were part of his process. And what, were the, what was the purpose of these pace setters? First of all, they provided a little bit of wind resistance. That's just a practical piece. But they were also in front of him setting the pace so that he knew the pace that he needed to run at in order to reach the mark that he was going for. God leads the way. God takes the initiative. God sets the pace so that we might move towards love in a way that only he could show us. God, God takes the initiative. First John 4 verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. What's so special about these two verses? They both show the initiative of God. Who loved first? God loved first. And it's significant because it shows that God is not passive. He doesn't just sit back and leave us to our own devices, to our own sin problem, but rather he takes an active role in the redemption of humanity. And once we realize this is the pattern of the Bible, once we see that it takes place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we're going to start to see it in our own stories. That God is taking the lead, he's taking the initiative, he's setting the pace, and the desires of our heart that are placed in there by God are actually led by a good God to show us that it is beyond our imagination. The pace setters were required for him to break that record for the marathon, but the power and the possibility did exist within him. He needed to see that the pace that he needed to go towards. You and I, when we make a decision to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are imbued with the ability to do well beyond our own imagining. But sometimes our imagination is limited because we have not allowed God to set the pace. God has not taken the initiative in our story because we have decided that I'm going to take the lead. We said, Holy Spirit, come in, follow me. Instead of Holy Spirit, come in, lead the way. Because my imagination of love is far diminished in comparison to his. I might say I know that love is one of self-sacrificing when in reality, self-sacrificing is okay for me up to the point in which I'm truly comfortable. But in the lens of Christ, self-sacrificing, self-giving love is love in its fullest representation. And therefore, I needed to lead the way. God takes the initiative. John wants us to know that God takes the lead. The second idea is that God enters into the mess. 1 John 4 verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 1 John 4.12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In previous weeks around this series, we've talked about these two ideas of, of grace and truth, that Jesus enters the world with grace and truth. And it can be sometimes like a, a paradigm that exists above our reality, but 
If Jesus comes in grace and truth and he is a relational being, he comes to, to build relationship, to save those who seek after him, then what we actually need to look at it is through its relational output. Grace and truth have a relational output of empathy and honesty. This, this is what's taking place when... When John is saying that God enters into the mess, there is no, gr no greater of an action, no more empathetic of an action than the one in which Jesus enters into the world. Our society thinks it's got empathy on lock when pity is the real avenue. Because again, we always do it up to a point in which we are most comfortable. Empathy looks like this. Empathy sees someone who's in, in a pit and they're stuck down there. Humanity has dug itself down and there's no way out. Pity comes to the edge of the pit and looks down and says, dang, tough. I'm really sorry. It's really nice up here. I hope that it gets better. And that's our cultural approach often. I have an awareness, but I lack action. And then we look at the person of Jesus who enters the world, who comes to the edge, sees us down in our struggle, enters into the mess, comes down into the pit with us, but doesn't come without a way for us to enter out. God enters into the mess, and he does so through his character of love. And this is what we know about God. God does not abandon the godless to their evil. Miroslav Volf, he says this, God does not abandon the godless to their evil, but gives the divine self for them in order to receive them into divine communion through atonement. So also should we, our enemies, and whoever we may be. We are meant to know that God enters into the mess. Third idea is that God transforms all that he comes into contact with. 1 John 4.11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is what's happening here. John is reminding churches of Ephesus that if God is truly part of their stories, then change happens. We are so comfortable with the idea of belief without action and belief without transformation. I've had it once. I had a moment when I was younger and I met Jesus and I am a Christian. I believe that he is real and it stays there. God transforms all that he comes into contact with. And if we are a people who believe that God is always with us, for us, and within us, then transformation should be a perpetual part of our lives. We should be being perfected into his image, completed in the love that he's demonstrated for us. And we have... We have confused the idea of contentment with the idea of what we're actually living out, and that's apathy. I'm content in where I'm at. Jesus saved me once, and I'm, I'm really glad about it. And we become apathetic about it instead of looking into our hearts, into our minds, into our relationships, into our families, asking each and every day, Holy Spirit, where would you want to do a new work? 
Do we ask that question? Do we invite the possibility of change? God transforms all that he comes into contact with. And through the lens of love, when we come into contact with love, our love is transformed. In World War II, Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of a Japanese POW camp. He wrote a famous book about it uh, after the World War, and he talks about Scottish soldiers who were building a railway through the jungle. And there was a moment on, on their endeavor, morale was low, of course, and things were difficult, and the, the warden came, and he was counting all the shovels, and he counted that one was missing. And he demanded, they, they provided, and no one was, would come forward. So instead, what he said is that if no one comes forward, I'm going to kill you all where you stand. Immediately, one individual st stepped forward, and he, he took responsibility for it. The guy put down his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat him to death. A couple moments later, they did a count of the shovels, and it was originally a miscount. There, there was no missing shovel. That man had willingly given himself for his, his compatriots. What Gordon talks about is that moment transformed their experience. Suddenly, the morale of the camp changed despite the conditions remaining the same. And then when the war came to an end and they were freed by the allies, they were given the opportunity to exact vengeance upon their captors. And they said to the allies, we want no more killing. This is what happens when we experience love as it's meant to be shown. Not love in a flighty cultural sense of a good feeling, but love that's self-sacrificing. It doesn't just affect something, it's e it effects something. It doesn't just do something to us, it does something through us. John wants us to know that God transforms all that he comes in contact with. And the fourth idea that runs throughout this text is that God always looks like Jesus. John says that if anyone claims to speak on God's behalf, he goes and talks about this in this text, and he talks about it in chapter 5 as well, if you're curious to go read on your own, that if there is any kind of message that is shared with the people that does not declare that Jesus is the crucified, risen Savior, then they are a false prophet. John says that God's true children will center their whole lives on Jesus because this is where God's heart is truly revealed. Why? Because God always looks like Jesus. And we see on the cross what love really looks like. We see a God that is a total self-giving, self-distributing of his love being that compels the followers of Jesus to love others in the same way. And when we meet this love, it does multiple things. It casts out fear. It draws our heart to his. It leads us to live a life that's different because God always looks like Jesus. When God's love is perfected in us, it's because we are dwelling and abiding in him. God in us. Because the Holy Spirit is at work doing God's business in his children. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The real evidence of your life that you are filled with the Spirit 
is not your ability to speak in tongues. It is not your ability to prophesy. It is not your ability to work miracles. It isn't your ability to understand deep spiritual truths. It is God's love pouring out of you. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. He said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he outlines in this beautiful text that we more, are probably more prone to be familiar with what love is. And he unpacks that calling love something, it is suffering that is long and it is kind. That is self-sacrificing. Love is, is not something envious. That's a diminishment of our pride, a diminishment of our wants, a submission of our hearts and our lives. That's self-sacrificing. Love does not parade itself. I could get plenty of attention of doing good things out of love, but it is not the love of Christ because it is not self-sacrificing. Love is not puffed up, therefore it is not prideful. I do not hold things for myself. I give all glory to God. And then love does not seek its own. It is not selfish. It is self-sacrificing because God is love and God always looks like Jesus. Yeah. And here's the thing. This is why we need the Spirit. Because I am incapable of doing this on my own. I could have a good desire, a good want, but my good intentions, my good works, my good hopes are not good enough. It is the Spirit of God coming alive within me each and every day and in every interaction that I can then point to in each moment to give glory where it's due because of the work that is taking place on a perpetual state within me. My heart's being renewed. My mind is being renewed. My actions are being transformed. All of it is being done because the Spirit that is in me is there because God loved me and God is love. We are meant to know that God looks like Jesus. And here's the thing. When I know that God takes the initiative, when I know that God enters the mess, when I know that God transforms all things, and I know that God always looks like Jesus, then we know this. You can put that slide up. That we know that love then takes the initiative. We know that love enters into the mess. We know that love transforms everything he comes into contact with. And we know that love always looks like Jesus. I can't love in the way that I'm meant to love until I know God. Because if God is all these things, he takes the initiative, enters the mess, transforms everything, always looks like Jesus, then when I'm de deciding to change my life, to live a life that looks like love, then I'm looking like the one who has love at his very core. This is love that comes alive within us. If you have ever felt your faith wander, John is saying, remember that God is love. Start there. If you've ever needed encouragement, remember that God is love. If you've ever felt exhausted, remember that God is love. Because to know that God is love is to know that out of that love, he pursues you. Out of that love, he comforts you. Out of that love, he meets you where you're at. And out of that love, he dispenses all fear and angst and renews our hearts and our minds. And this, 
This right here is what John is leading us towards. This is a miracle. And this is where we sometimes miss it. We get to this point and we think, oh, I, I get all these things. I know all these things. And what John is saying to a church that is on the brink of collapse is do not forget that the greatest miracle that needs to captivate our hearts and minds is that God, in his great love for you, came to be with you. Knowing God is seeing the miracle. John is trying to communicate that you don't know God if you don't see his love as a miracle. And this is perhaps the greatest struggle of our Western culture. In our self-sufficient, everything provided, entitled mentality culture. We think, of course God should love me. If God is love, yeah, I should get that love. And we've lost sight of the miracle. Because what happens when you see a miracle? You live in awe, in wonder. You tell the story. You invite a friend. You give of your life to see it done again because it provides hope in a way that nothing else does. Have you stopped seeing God's love for you as a miracle? And perhaps you can say as a whole, no, I do see it as such. But Spirit, would you guard our hearts when the moments when it is lost? Or maybe you're saying, I, I, I think I know God. I, I read my Bible and I think a lot of good things. But I haven't thought about his love being a miracle for me in a long, long time. Now, worship team, you can join me at the front. There, there's a lot of barriers to knowing God that we can face, whether it's apathy, whether it's pride, experiences, distraction. I'm not trying to diminish the realities of life. But John is writing to a people on the brink of disaster, and he's saying, I just want you to realize that God's love towards you is a miracle. And I want you to live from that miracle. Uh, my, my little girl is just over one year old, and, I, and I've said this to a bunch of friends of mine, that the day that she was born, we're at the hospital, and things are proceeding well enough, and you, you hear from everyone, like, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to look like, what's that moment going to be like. And they tell you, you, you can never expect what it's going to feel like for you in particular. And that moment when, when Mia entered the world, I'll, I'll always remember it. Because she comes out kicking and screaming, enters the world with a bang. And all I feel in that moment is this immense love. And it was a love that was just there. In reality, uh, Mia was hurting the person that I loved the most. She had done nothing to deserve 
the love that I felt for her in that moment. She just was, and love just was as well. It was the closest thing I think I've been gifted in this life to see what God's love is like for us. That it just is. It sits at the very center of all of creation. And love finds us. And it just is. It's not dependent upon our good works, our intentions, or anything around that. Love just finds us because God is love. And he wants us to know him. Wants to embrace that miracle that is the love he has for us. And enter into a relationship with him that transforms our lives. That leads us to a place of change. That takes this burden of loving our neighbor into a joy that flows out of our very being. Because we know God and I can't do anything but. I wonder if, if you've if you're here this morning and you don't know the story of Jesus, that the gospel of Jesus is that when we were broken and we were in a place of disrepair, God did not leave us to our own devices, but he came and found us in this state and met us where we're at. Came down to be with us, to show us a, a new way, a better way, a true way saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he shows what love really is, and he goes down this path to Golgotha, betrayed by those who said that they loved him. And he showed them what real love was, and he goes to that cross, and he gives of his life willingly. He enters death itself, breaks the chains of death, so that life can, be break, can break forth. And he rises again three days later, and he invites you and I to not simply be people on one side of the story looking at a cross, but on the other side, a resurrected people, a resurrection people, full of the Holy Spirit, living the life of love that he demonstrated on the cross in everything that we do. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. And I wonder, as you do so, if you could just close your eyes with me and, and just take a moment... I know, I know for myself, I can be so hard-hearted in, in situations like this, and I can just think upon the things that are good in my life and just, just move past maybe a conviction I feel in my heart. But I wonder if you might ask yourself, have you forgotten the miracle of the love of God? And maybe just even in your seat right now, I just want to pray for you if, if that is a miracle that needs to be revived within your heart something that leads you to awe and wonder and change and transformation. If you're in your seat right now and you're feeling like, I've, yeah, I've forgotten that miracle of love that God has for us. Could you just raise your hand for me? Yeah. Yes, oh God. And I wonder... If you're here today and, and you're, you're saying to yourself, I don't know God. I don't know God in the way that, like this. I think I know ideas, I know verses, or I, or I know maybe a, a theology. But he hasn't captured your heart. I wonder if you might open yourself up in this moment. just to receive a change 
that might move within you. Spirit of God, we just invite you into our hearts and minds. For those who are, are open in this moment, those who are asking in this moment, thank you that you come and you meet us where we're at. That you, you convict our hearts and our minds in a way that it does not lead us to a place of shame and condemnation, but draws us to your heart, one of love, one of grace, one of freedom, one of hope. So I just pray right now for the thoughts in our minds that are, are binding us to a place of controlling our own destiny or controlling our own path, our own pace. Those thoughts that we hold on to because of the of fear of, of disrepair in our own lives or of, of a faulty relationship with you that has, has lost its way, we pray, Spirit of God, would you bring renewal into our space? Would you renew our hearts and minds? Not to be what it was, but to be better than it ever has been. To be better than we could ever dream it could be. To be more like you. May the love in this place be a love that looks like you. Would we be a people of self-sacrificing, self-giving love? Not by our own strength, but by you and you alone. Holy Spirit, we just invite you into our hearts, into this place. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.